Well, if you do have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 9, please. Luke chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. Before we do that, let's pray and ask for God's mercy this morning. Father, here we are before you. As we open your word, we look to you and we ask you to feed us. Open our eyes and our ears to speak to us and that you would by your spirit work through your word and minister to us. Because apart from you, apart from the work of your spirit in us through your word, it becomes to us a dead letter. May this morning we receive from you grace and mercy and life and the words of truth, for we ask it in Christ. Amen. Well, if you guys recall, last week, recall last week? Kind of. Barely. What we tried to do, what I tried to do here last week was remind us all uh, where our troop hope lies, especially in regard to this nation and all that we see going on around us. What is our mission in all of this? What should we be doing? We, hopefully you realized from that that our mission, or sorry, our, our hope does not lie in this election or the next law that might be passed. Our hope is not there. We do not place our hope in there. And the hope for this nation does not lie there. But those are markers and they should speak to us. We should see and we should take, take regard and read from that and understand that we actually, we as the church, need to be doing something. And as a church, what ought we to be doing? Well, we need to be following Jesus in his mission of making disciples. That was his plan from the beginning. This is where he said, I've, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm king and lord of it all, heaven and earth. And he has a plan for the nations, a plan for bringing all the nations into his kingdom. And what was that plan? He tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And so that's what we that's our mission as the church. This is what we're called to do. So we need to be as a church, we need to be deeply committed, deeply committed to this mission and keep our eyes focused on it. And one of the ways we have been committed to it and I think it's glorious is that we actually are committed to discipling our children. We realize this is not a neutral area that we truly need to pour our lives into them and disciple them and teach them and train them up and build them up in the faith. So they love the Lord Jesus Christ, and they too can go and make disciples. And so this is also why we as a church need to make sure that we're investing. We're investing in the training of disciples. We're investing in you guys to know how, so that you might know how you ought to make disciples. And right now, during the discipleship class, that's a clever name, huh? Discipleship class. It kind of goes. I, I liked how it worked out. But right now, in discipleship class, what we have going on is an opportunity for all of you to be trained, to be equipped. And you hear this class, and the name of it's apologetics. And you think, oh, apologetics, I love that. I love the name, of that, that sound of that name. You know, what does that mean? Well, because what the idea of it is, is to equip you to be able to defend the faith. You're giving a defense for what it is you believe. And Jared's teaching that class. And the whole idea of that is to train and equip you guys so that you're able to, when you encounter arguments against the faith, you're able to answer them. 
You understand where they're coming from, and you understand what the scriptures say in response. And that's the idea of that class, is to equip you. Because you're going to run into, I guarantee you, conversations, family, friends, other people, about our, your faith, about the Christian faith, and what's going to happen. You're going to sometimes encounter arguments, aren't you, that are stumpers. Well, the whole idea of this is to help you work through this. And you know something else that happens in the process is that your faith is built up and strengthened. You become more and more grounded and more and more confident and sure of your faith. So this is something that we're offering to you, and you really should take advantage of it. The other thing that we're doing is it's actually, if you can't make the class, it is on our website. So you can go on there, and in terms of finding it, I just realized you go up to the sermon section up top, and there's a drop-down, and it says discipleship class. And you can click on that, and then you can go and listen to those. The other thing that we're doing come January is we are actually going to be offering a class on how it is that you reach out and make disciples of the people God has placed around you in an organic and natural way. And this is starting in January. In January, we're, going, we're starting a class called Organic Discipleship. And it begins from how reaching out to, the, to friends, families, and neighbors, how to do it in a very organic, natural way, and then walking them through in a discipleship process. And so these are the things that we're seeking to do and hopefully further equip you and give you some great opportunities to do that, to make disciples in your particular world. This morning, we're also going to be talking about an aspect of discipleship as we get back in the Gospel of Luke. I told you to turn to the Gospel, to Luke chapter 9, and this is where we left off, what was it, over a year ago? You guys remember all that, right? Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to pick back up. And uh, what we're going to discover here this morning is also, this is Jesus commissioning his disciples to go and make disciples. And so the process now is starting to multiply. And we're going to see how it is that Jesus does that. But before we do that, I just quickly want us to just kind of get our heads and minds back in the arena of Luke and what's happening. And so we could realize, okay, where are we at? What's been going on? And, you know, just briefly, we understand that Jesus has made his public ministry known, and he's in the middle of it. And he's going around, he's healing the sick and the lame and the blind and the deaf. He's casting out demons and he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And he's also, he's at, we've just, we went through a section where he's taking on the religious elite and exposing them for the shams that they are, which is getting him in deep trouble and is going to lead to his crucifixion. Jesus also is going around and he's doing things that are just outstanding Stuff like walking on water. He's calming storms. He curses trees. He turns water into wine. He raises the dead. And soon, just what we're going to see in chapter 9 here in a couple of weeks, he feeds 5,000 people plus with five loaves and two fish. So what are we to take from all this? All that Jesus is, is, is doing. We clearly see that Jesus is demonstrating to anybody who will pay attention, who anybody who has eyes to see and ears to hear, that Jesus truly is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh, God's only begotten Son. Because nobody can do what He is doing by His mere word on all of creation, and it obeys Him instantly. He speaks, and it is. 
Do you realize that he walks into one impossible scenario after another? And each impossible scenario is met with power that it transcends our understanding. It leaves your jaw on the floor. Who is this man, we ask? Who could he be? He's none other than the Son of God. Or he's, this is the biggest lie perpetrated on humanity. Jesus is indeed the Son of God, and you have to deal with it. And that's the thing through it, through it all. It's like you're confronted with him, and you have to deal with it. But in this process of all these amazing things, there's something underlying that he's doing in his ministry and how he goes about his ministry. His ministry is very methodical. His ministry is very purposeful. His ministry has a plan. He's laying down the groundwork for how the kingdom of God is going to overtake the kingdom of darkness. And how is that? Through the making of disciples. He reaches out to the lost by ministering to them and proclaiming good news to them. He then begins to teach up and and build up those who are responding to him. There's a people who start to follow him and respond to him. And from them, he chooses 12 that he's going to equip and train for leadership. And then what we're going to see now is then from there, he sends them out and begins to multiply the ministry. And so there's these these four aspects that you see throughout the Gospels. There's reaching of the lost, there's the building up of those followers, there's the training of the leaders, and then there's the commissioning and sending of uh, of them to go and do what? Do likewise. That's how the ministry of making disciples is lived out. That actually is the health of all ministry. We see in the the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament that this is really the model for the church. The church is reaching the lost, building up believers, training leaders, and then commissioning and sending them out to go and do likewise. And so it's really the measure of a healthy church. We have to ask ourselves at Redeemer, what are the, what's the measure of a healthy church? Well, are you effectively reaching the lost, building up believers, training leaders, and then commissioning and sending them out to multiply the ministry? That's really how you, how you diagnose your health. How are we doing? This is what the church is to be about. Well, here we, in this passage, we're going to focus this morning on that one aspect, that Jesus, for the first time now, this last phase, he sends out the 12. He commissions them. And what's the first thing he does if you look at chapter 9, verse 1? He is, he's empowering his disciples for the task. He just doesn't send them out. He empowers them and gives them authority and then sends them out. Look at verse 1 and 2. It says, And he called the 12 together, and he gave them... Power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So Jesus gives them power and authority. How? By simply declaring it to him. I give it to you. What we've noticed about Jesus, that when he speaks, things happen. This was conveyed simply by Jesus saying, you have authority and power. And then lo and behold, they have it. He gives it to them and they have it. And then he tells them to go and do. If you look at what he told them to do, he tells them to basically go and do what he's doing. Do what you've seen me do. You're going and I'm sending you out and they're going to go and you're going to basically heal the sick, cast out demons and proclaim the kingdom, which is exactly what I did. So go and do likewise. Of course, They weren't exactly ready yet to go out on their own fully. This was not a full commission where, see you later, I'll never see you again, hope it goes well. This was a very short little 
stint where he sends them out and the expectation was they would come back and they would debrief and correct any goofiness, things they ran into. They realize this, they're still being trained even though he's in this, where he's starting now to send them out. And in, in actually in, in Luke chapter 10, one chapter over, the disciples return from a mission and uh, they are pretty pumped. They are rejoicing. And they're saying, "Woo! that was amazing. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. See, these guys, they think this is the best thing ever, as you can imagine. You're going out telling people in Jesus' name to, you know, the demon to go out, and the, the demon goes out, and, and, and they're blown away by what they're able to do in Jesus' name. And then Jesus corrects them. He realizes that they're young, they're passionate, they're zealous. And he says, do not rejoice that the demons obey you, but rather rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, or that you you're, rejoice that your names are written in heaven is actually how he says it to on another occasion, they reported, they came back. So we know they're going out and he comes back. They come back and report that um, there was a demon that they couldn't cast out. Do you guys remember that story? And they're wondering, well, we don't know what happened. And then Jesus instructs him. He says, well, there's this particular demon is not going to come out except through prayer and fasting. Oh, okay. So they're learning. They're going out. They're coming back in. And so they're still in need of refinement. They're still in need of of follow-up, they're still in need of instruction because they're not finished products yet. However, Jesus knew that they were ready to be empowered for ministry, for the ministry that he was expanding and extending into the further regions of, of uh, Judea. And I think we see something here that's very important for the ministry of making disciples. When it comes to empowering people and giving them responsibility, we shouldn't wait until they're perfect or nearly perfect. We should be more apt to empower and give responsibility to test people and to help them grow. We should be apt to want to extend and expand ministry, especially in the Reformed world. Boy, we often don't empower and give authority to anyone unless they've been uh, in the faith for 20 plus years without a blemish. And even then we're questioning. We're not sure. We're so zealous to protect. And we're fear, we have a fear of, of that we're going to, if we do this, we're going to run into problems. And uh, we just do not want to be empowering and giving authority and sending people out. We want to be careful. And granted, true, obviously, yes. But our ditch is not being careful. We're good at that. Our ditch is being overly careful and, and restrictive to the point of it's not good. And of course, when it comes to ordaining overseers and elders, uh, we have to be careful. We have to, the scriptures clearly teach us that they should not be new to the faith. They should not be young believers. And it does require a fairly high standard. But there's, in the making of disciples, there's lots of cases in which we can extend and train and teach and commission people to go and give them authority and power, so to speak, like Jesus, and extend the ministry. Because even look at Peter. Peter's a great example, isn't he? As a, he's still, a, he's not finished being a buffoon. He's, he's, it's like he, what he does even shortly after this is he rebukes Jesus. It's talking about going to the cross. And Jesus has to say to him, get behind me, Satan. And then not shortly after that, he ends up denying Jesus. And then we see Jesus, even Paul has to rebuke him later on. And so it's, it's, it's a work in progress. 
It's not that we're looking for perfect people in order to do this, but people who are, they want to, they follow in the Lord, they've given their life to him and they want to, and they desire to follow him and they desire to go and make disciples. They need to be trained, they need to be equipped and they need to be commissioned with power and authority. And so in the church, often what we have, especially like I said in reform circles, is things get compartmentalized and sealed up really tight. So you have, you know, you can have a teaching elder, you have a ruling elder, you can have deacons, and then you have volunteers. And it, it all seems to be, you know, pretty sealed up. So if you had a love, you know, if you love to give, love to serve, you have energy, you have time, and you really want to do something, you have, you know, talents that you don't feel are being used, it seems like everything's locked up. It seems like there's nothing else to be offered. Like, what, what can I do? But we have to debunk this. This is, not, this is not the way we should think. This is not how we should conduct ourselves. Because you need to know, to th- know that if there's anything you would like to do in this body, you should simply get alongside someone who does it and say, is there a way you can train me to do that? I would love to be involved. That's, that, that's how we need to think. We need to think of every single person here. If, if someone has, it's, we don't lock down positions. Like, for example, you know, this is Dean. I, 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 I got this pulpit ministry and don't ever come near it. It's not that way at all. If you would like to be a preacher, guess what you should do? You should come talk to me and tell me that. I'd love to be a preacher. And I'd love to, I'd, I'd love to know how to do this. That's, that's amazing. Let's start training you to do that. If you'd like to be a teacher, go talk to Mike, and he'd love to train you up and work with you as well. If, if you'd love to, you know, huh? <laughs> if you'd like to help set up, go talk to, to Byron Shirley. <laughs> Maybe that's your passion. If you'd like to help with multimedia or something like that, go talk to Justin. If you'd like to help with music or you've got, you know, you'd, if you want to get involved in any way, don't let your mindset look around and think that everything's locked up, sealed and tight. They do not commission. They do not give authority. They will not extend to it. It doesn't work like that. The whole church, the mindset of the church needs to be one of constant discipleship, training up so that we get to the point where we can start expanding ministry. There's a lots and lots of need. Because a healthy church is one that trains, it's one that empowers, and it's one that commissions its people for ministry. It follows the example of our Lord Jesus. This is the way you do it, as Jesus is doing it, and that's what his disciples went and did. Another clear aspect to this phase of ministry is that Jesus demonstrates here, it's the clear explanation of what is needed. If you're going to commission somebody, if you're going to send them out, they need a clear explanation of what is needed. If you look at verse 3, what does Jesus tell them? He tells the disciples what to take. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Basically, don't take another tunic either. What Jesus is doing here is sending them out for a short term trip he's not he's not intending for them to go on an extended stay and i say this because they won't need extra clothes they won't need extra sandals tunics etc and will have their food and drink taken care of by the people who invite them in you don't need extras when it's short term do you and you can at least expect hospitality for a couple of days but not only that How do I know that this is short-term and Jesus 
is only talking. And pro- the reason you don't need this stuff, I'm sending you out very short, short-term like, because of what he says later on. In uh, Luke chapter 22, very, something very significant, he actually changes it completely. In 22 verses 35 through 36, he said to them, when I sent you out, many earlier, times we're looking at now, with no money or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now, let the one who has a money bag take it. Things are changing here. And likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Yeah, get a weapon. (laughs) I'm sending you, the time is coming. He knows his end is near. He knows persecution is going to arise. He knows that no longer little short trips where you go out, come back, he debriefs with them. It's going to be, you're going to be scattered and you're going to be sent. And there's the time is coming when you better pack your bags because it's not going to be a short trip. It's going to be a long one. You know, on a short trip, when you go somewhere, a hospitable person will gladly, if they're they're hospitable, invite you into their home. They'll give you some food, they'll give you some drink, and they'll give you a place to sleep. Gladly. But things would be quite different if you told them you plan on staying for a month. Welcome, Cousin Eddie. It's fine for a couple days, but after that, it starts to get weird. And so Jesus was not planning on them. He's saying, you don't need to take these things, explaining what they needed, because they weren't going to actually need them. They're not going for a long trip, but a short trip. And some people think this means that this is the way that we should actually send preachers out. You know, just tell them to go, trust the Lord, depend on other people, and just get out there and go. There's actually, there's models like this. And I think, well, did you go read Luke 22? Because I think you're misunderstanding the context and really what's happening. These are short trips. They come back constantly to him. They're going out and coming back. But while they're there, he's saying, this is how you should conduct yourself. This is what you should do. And so as a good, as any good commissioner, what Jesus does is he tells them and explains to them what is needed. What you need. Because if you don't do that, and you go unprepared or you go overprepared, it it's, gets rather obnoxious. It, it starts to feel like, you know, why didn't you explain that to me? Just, you know, let's just imagine for a moment your boss is telling you to go and fix this elderly person's bathroom at their home, and that's all they said. And so you just assume. You assume, okay, the tools and materials are going to be there, and I, and then you arrive, you show up, and they're not there. Wonderful. Anybody in construction's ran into this before? Because you're like, okay, now uh, I don't have what I need, and now it's almost a waste of a day. And so what happens is that when we're when we're sent on mission, we're sent. We need to cl- have it clearly explained to us what's what's needed, and in this case, even what's not needed. You don't need this, and you need this. You don't need this, you need this. And so even when you're discipling your children, you know one of the most helpful things you can do when you tell them something? You commission them. You tell them to go and get this done. Is tell them what they need and they don't need, especially children. Because they're going to assume that you didn't tell them, and they'll just go, and then you're like, you dummy, why didn't you think of that? You know, And you're all frustrated and, and that waste half the day because they went and didn't have what was needed. And then we 
we end up causing a whole bunch of problems. So what Jesus shows us here is that he just doesn't send them out with authority. He also tells them what is needed and what isn't needed. And if we're ever commissioning people, the one thing we have to understand, if we're going to be good at it, is we have to explain to them and tell them what is needed and what isn't needed and be very clear about that. And we, so that means, requires on us, that we really have to think through. Think through, what, okay, what is needed and what isn't needed. So the person clearly knows, has what they need in order to t- fulfill the task the mission and so i think that that's it, it's clear and every time you see jesus doing this throughout he's doing this he's explaining to them what they need and not just that he also goes on in this text to explain to them or he equips them with a methodology how when you go this is what i want you to do look at it, verse four and five and whatever house you enter stay there and from there depart And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, it doesn't say a whole lot here. The methodology is in here, but this is just a summary, a quick summary. And we know that because in other places, in other parts of the Gospels where he sends them out and he tells them what to do, this is much elaborated on much more clearly. So the, the method was to go into a town and village and if someone received them, they were to go with that person and stay them, with them. And just so you know that this is actually, there's more to it than this, if you were to flip over to chapter 10 of Luke, you'll see in verses 5 through 9, he gives more details about how this act, what this looks like, how it works. Jesus, there in that passage, Jesus says to his disciples, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. And do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. So he tells them how they're to proceed, what exactly they're to do. And he gives some details here. The key aspect here to note is, you remember, see that word in there, person of peace? It's a very interesting phrase, isn't it? They were to find a person of peace, and once they did, this was the person they were to stay with the whole time. This was kind of going to be their key pivotal person that they work with and around in the community. According to Leon Morris in his commentary on Luke, they are to give the greeting of peace, which is the common Jewish greeting. And if the householder is a son of peace a man characterized by peace, their peace will rest upon him. A state of harmony will exist. But if he is not, it shall return to you. This figurative language assures the disciples that they will not be trying to convey a blessing to someone who does not wish to receive it. Now, it is a little hard to figure out how this would have played itself out. So this whole greeting and receiving of the blessing, because we're separated by a long time and culturally we don't exactly function like this so we don't it's it's hard even the commentators and the people i looked into it's hard to figure out exactly what did this look like how would this have played itself out clearly they understood more better than we did because that's how they function but here's my best shake at it as i was thinking through this like what might this look like what might they be thinking in their heads i think it's probably something like this disciples would come into a town and they had probably observed, walk around, walk into the center of the town. There's, you know, there's the center part, the marketplace, and there's housing and stuff. And they would scope out the area. 
obviously. And they, let's say they went up to a person's house and, you know, knock, 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 and hello, and they greeted them with a blessing, and then they stated their purpose in town. We're here, and uh, we're here to heal the sick and cast out demons, and because this wouldn't have been odd to Jewish people. They understand, like, uh, this was happening. They all, all these people probably would have heard what was happening with Jesus, and they'd come in the name of Jesus to do this. And, and they might even ask, do, do you have anyone here that is sick or could you use help? We will um, we'll pray for them. And they said, uh, if, if they receive them, and they said, okay, yes, and then they, they minister to them and say the person was healed, you can probably at that point guarantee that the person would receive the blessing, would receive what they gave to them and accept them and bring them in, most likely. Now, if... If they were resistant at the door, they went knock, 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 told them what they're there for, and the person said, sorry, not interested, it would be in a sense of, you know, they would not return the blessing. So there would be no returning or the giving of peace. This person would not be a person that you're at peace with. They, immediately you can tell this is a person that there is no peace. And so they're not a person of peace. And therefore they would know that you know that God is not at work here. I must move on. And if you keep trying, he says, you go around and you can't find anybody there who will receive you. There's no person who will be at peace with you and what you're trying to do. Then you're to move, head out of town. You're to put the dust off your feet, literally meaning don't even have anything to do with the dust that's associated with these people. Get rid of even that. Get the dust off. I mean, it's, it's again, a cultural expression. We wouldn't do that. But you basically say, I have nothing to do with you guys. Hands are clean from anything that might have soiled them and so are my feet so this was the methodology that's how they're do they're going to town they're to go up to approach people tell them their mission they come in jesus name to do what they came to do and if they were received then they ministered to them and the person who received them in they say we're going to stay here for a couple days and then they say well why don't you stay with us and that's how it would work they clearly knew given what Jesus told them, what they were to go and do, how the method would work. And it made cultural sense. It wasn't a weird thing. He's like, you can tell by the greeting system. You greet them and how they respond to you. Tell them what you're doing and you greet them. And if they receive you what you're there to do, then you know God is at work and there's your signal. So they knew the methodology. It wasn't weird. It wasn't odd. It fit within their cultural context and it made sense. But of course, in saying all that, I don't know, uh, none of us can tell, know the exact method of procedure, but it had to have been something like that, right? I mean, just from what we see, especially what we see the life of Jesus and how he functioned, what he says in the rest of scripture about it, just how the greeting systems work, how hospitality worked and stuff like that. It, it had to have at least been a little bit like that. Now, in our culture, let's bring that to us today. How does that affect us? Like, in, and how do we apply that? Well, we might not respond by, we, might, we wouldn't approach and we wouldn't respond in the same ways, but we do have our way of letting people know either they're welcomed or not. So just think of the last time a salesperson came to your door, knocked, knocked on your door. And usually, you right away, you hesitantly open the door and we want to know what's your purpose, Right? Can I help you? Hello. And then they start in. Hello, my name is, and you're, and you're waiting to hear from what they're saying, whether or not you're going to shut them off very quickly and say, sorry, I'm not interested, close the door, or 
We, we give them more time and attention. And we say, oh, okay, tell me more. Hey, would you like to step in? And so depending on how we respond, some people can be, you know, shut off immediately and we communicate them by very, do we all know how to be icy and cold? Yes. We, can, we know that we, can, we keep the door slightly cracked, kind of frown, scowl a bit, look very uh, suspicious and quickly say not interested. We communicate very quickly to them that we, you know, there's, we're not like, hey, come on in, this is great, Just sit down, you know, and grab a drink. So we, we communicate as well. We culturally have our own ways of doing it, but we let the person know you best be getting going or, you know, tell me more. So we get that. We understand that this is probably how it worked in the, their days. But here's something that I don't think we do get or understand our subtleties even in our communication with people. Now, the salesman's obvious. That's kind of a brash, breaking this private public barrier, and it can be kind of uncomfortable. But there's things that happen, even in our conversations with the people we know, that teach us about where they're at in terms of what God is doing in their life. Is God at work in their life? And the more you, you speak with people and the more you communicate with them, and the more you throw things out there and watch their response, you begin to realize that their heart always gives them away. Hardness of heart comes out. Softness of heart comes out. It just happens. So we need to learn how to read people's reactions to know whether or not is this a person of peace, quote-unquote, what Jesus taught me here or not. And there's a tremendous amount of information that's given. Let's just say, for example, you risk this one. You're at work, and you're leaving work, and you say something like, God bless you guys, and you get, and then you just, you do it for curiosity's sake to watch the reactions. One person goes, you know, they don't say anything. Another person says, oh, thank you. You as well. Another person says, and God bless you too. And, uh, and, you, get, and you get all kinds of reactions, and all of those reactions have told you a bunch of information. All of them have, have expressed a reaction to that statement about what's going on in their hearts. You know, the, and, and if we become intuitive and understand by certain phrases and things that are said and by reactions that we get, we can tell where people are at. We can tell whether a person might even be worth following up with or not and, and, and taking the conversation to another level. You know, there's, there's opportunities that I've had and a couple things that I love to do is actually, uh, one, tell somebody that uh, if they're going through a hard time, that I will pray for them. And I always like to, and I'm waiting to see how they respond. Either they change the conversation or they continue on to talk about what it is I said I'd pray for, or it could be anywhere from saying, oh, thank you, I really appreciate that. You know, man, that means a lot. You know, and you're going to get all kinds of responses, and then I can tell from that response maybe how I should follow up with them and ask them, hey, I prayed for you, what happened, and, and kind of interact with them. Or know that they, they really weren't even interested in me praying at all. Like, please don't do that. So you can get a lot of information from how they react to the things you say to them. The other thing that I would often do, especially I did this at hockey all the time when I'd run into guys, talk to them. They say to me, what do you do? Well, I tell them I'm a pastor. Oh, really? And so it allows me to, from there, go into the next question I love to ask. Is, hey, do you go to church? And what I like about that question is that just now I just get a ton of information from 
no, I'd never go to church, man, to, yeah, you know, as a kid I did, to, you know, I, yeah, I, should, I did once and I really should be getting back to it. You, know. you get all kinds of reactions, but you get what you have is a window into their hearts to know you see people who are very receptive to people who are very cold and hard-hearted. And we, we have to understand that when Jesus is teaching them to be wise, wise as serpents, as said in Matthew 10 that was read for us this morning, and innocent as doves, being able to discern the reaction that people give you tells you a lot about where they're at. And it tells you whether or not you should follow up and realize God, God is at work in this person's life. And that you should, you should pursue that person. And so we got to be, and that's one of the things about training and equipping, we got to get good at really starting to understand the response people give us. Just as Jesus was telling his disciples to notice the detail of the instruction especially Luke 10 and other passages, even in Matthew 10, get a lot of detail about what they're to perceive and know and understand and see and what they're looking for. Because God is at work in people's lives. And if you become perceptive by things that you say and things that they say and the responses, you can begin to see where God is at work and know whether you should pursue something or not. You know, one of the things, this is one of the things we need to do as a church and do a a good job of, and I realize it more and more all the time, is to train you how it is you become sensitive, how it is that you can start to hear, say things and hear the responses and know how to follow up with them. And that's one of the things we're going to do in that discipleship class in, in January, the organic discipleship, is talk about those issues, talk about the things that you should look for, the things that when you hear responses, what that means, and then how to follow up with them. Those are things that we all need to be equipped with if we're going to go out and make disciples. Because one of the things that happens in life that you encounter day in and day out, people. And and God is also at work in the world and people's lives, and you don't have the eyes to necessarily see it on the outside. Because he works on them by the Spirit in their hearts. And so it's very important that we understand that there's ways, and even as Jesus gave to his disciples, there's ways to know whether or not they're a person of peace and whether or not you should proceed with them or not. And that's, and it's not like being, hey, you know, we all have to be some weirdos and force down people's throats and say, you know, we're going to do the, we'll do the, you know, the door knock and evangelism. We're going to go up to doors and we're just going to, you know, here's the system. Here's the model. Here's what you say. You say hello and move. You get into it. And here's the, the script. If they say this, you say this. If they say this, you say this. And you just walk through the script and you got to get to the place where you confront them with the question of whether or not if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And then the next confront them with the question of, would you be willing to pray right now to receive the Lord Jesus Christ? A model like that, you notice how Jesus says nothing like that but rather gives them more cultural cues and intuitive uh, questions and responses to understand how to navigate the waters. Even watch Jesus himself. He doesn't have any pattern. He, he, he responds to people differently. And what he, what he has is, a, is, is an understanding that the Father is at work. He says, I've come to do the Father's will. I do nothing but where, do the work that my Father has. That he, where he's at work, that's where I work. And so that's what we need to understand and realize is that if we are to make disciples, if we're to commission them, we have to know how to commission them. 
We have to realize and understand that we have to be, we have to be empowering and giving authority and sending people, and we have to explain to them what it is they need and what it is they don't need, and we also have to equip them with a methodology that's organic and natural and is, is functionable in life itself, no matter where you're at. And this is the model Jesus gives, and it's the model that we should replicate, and it's the model that we're going to seek to train all of us in at Redeemer. So hopefully we know what it means to go and make disciples. And may the Lord add his blessing to all that we do. Amen. Father, we're so thankful. We praise you that uh, Jesus is for us the great Redeemer. The one who goes into the world and naturally through relationships has sought us out. And then he sends the disciples. And from the sending and the commissioning around the world, that here we are on the other side of the world believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ because of that discipleship that was taking place at the beginning. We praise you for what you're doing. You've taken the foolish things and you're using them to confound the wise. We praise you that we have an opportunity to watch you work in our world and come alongside what it is you're doing and join you in that ministry, the work you, Lord Jesus, are currently active in. Oh, give us a burden and a passion to make disciples and wisdom and knowledge and understanding and how it is we go about doing that. For we ask it in Christ. Amen.